This morning's scripture reading will be from 1 Samuel 7:13 through 9:27. So if you're able, please remain standing for the word of God. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to pick to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to all his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 9. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerar, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys it become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people.
Please be seated. So it's a, a rather lengthy piece of scripture that we are looking at this morning, uh, and uh, uh, the abridged version uh, was, was read. We didn't read all uh, of it this morning. Um, we are going to be looking at uh, the end of chapter 7 uh, through the end of chapter 9. If you're just joining us, uh, we are going through a, a series on the book of First Samuel. This is an Old Testament book called First Samuel. And, uh, and if you've never studied this book, uh, you might look in the table of contents of your Bible and see there's a 1 Samuel and there's a 2 Samuel, which might lead you to believe that there's, there's one story and there's a sequel to that story, when in fact it's, it's actually one story. Uh, in, in the original Hebrew, it was just one uh, scroll that contained all of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's actually really one story. And the story has a climax that we, you see at the, the end of 1 Samuel, where uh, this man named Saul, who has... Uh, is the first king of Israel. He has disobeyed God and he's been rejected by God as king and he ends up dying in a very horrific, bloody way on this, this hilltop. And, and this is the, the climax of, of the book of, of Samuel. Now, for those of you who've been following along in this series, hopefully um, you are seeing Jesus in 1 Samuel. Uh, and what I mean by that is when, when we, re- we read scripture, we are meant to read it from back to front, or from, I'm sorry, from front to back. We're meant to read it from front to back. We're meant to, to go from Genesis to Revelation. And, and in the process, we're meant to discover who God is and what he's done for us, which leads us to the climax of the story in Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. But once we've done that, then we can go and look back and we can see Jesus throughout the text. From, from the very beginning, all the way back through Genesis, through the, through the whole entire thing, we can see Jesus. And, and what we discover here is like Jesus is the better Saul, that Jesus, uh, he too will be rejected by God, not because he disobeyed God, but he will be rejected by God and he will die a bloody, violent death on a hill. But he'll do it for us. He'll do it to redeem us. And so hopefully, if you've been following along in this series, you have, you have seen Jesus throughout and, and you will see him again uh, this morning. So, um, because this is such a lengthy uh, passage of scripture, um, rather than go through it line by line or word for word, I'm going to retell it. I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to stop various points along the way and, uh, uh, and point out some important things. And then after we're done with that, we're going to look at it and we're going to ask some, some difficult questions of the text. Because what we discover is um, that, that there's some things in here that on the surface seem uh, inconsistent and maybe even contradictory. And so we're going to, to put some tough questions toward that that text. All right, so here we go. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 13, where it says, so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So to go back a little bit, uh, the the children of of Israel are are slaves in the land of Egypt. God brings them out, uh, eventually arriving at this promised land that he gives to them, and uh, they they go into the promised land, they take it, and then the tribes of Israel divide up, and they take different portions of, of that area known as Palestine. Now, this was a period of time, it's called the Judges. There was no central leadership during this time. There was central worship in a place called Shiloh. They set up the tabernacle there, and you could go and worship God there. There was central worship, but there wasn't central human leadership. And what God did was he established one of the tribes, the tribes of, 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 of Levi, to disperse with the other tribes and in a priestly role, keep them connected to God. Continually remind them of God's law. Continually show them who God is and was. 
Now, what we see in the book of Judges is that the, the, the children of Israel, they would experience times of peace and prosperity. And when that happened, generally, they would deviate from God. They would, they would go and they would worship other gods, the gods of the nations around them. And when that happened, God would take his hand of protection off of them. The enemies would come in. They would attack them and oppress them until the Israelites would once again call out to God for help. God would hear them. He would raise up a deliverer called a judge, and usually there was some military victory that would follow, a time of peace and prosperity and justice once again, and then the cycle would start all over again. And so we reach the time of Samuel, and Samuel is the last one of these judges. He's the final one, all right? And under Samuel, um, they, uh, the, there is peace and there's prosperity again. And it says that the hand of God is against uh, the Philistines, against their enemies. Now, Samuel's going to do something that no other judge has ever done before. And that is he's going to try to set up a hereditary structure of leadership. Right? Before, there wasn't permanent central leadership. God would raise up a judge as necessary but what Samuel's going to do is he's going to actually uh, tap his sons on the shoulder and he's going to say, you guys are going to be judges. And he, and he begins to try to, to initiate a hereditary form of human leadership. Okay? That's what he begins to do. And so he has these two sons. They're named Joel and, and Abijah. And we see in verse 3, he says, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And this word took is really, really important. They took bribes. So uh, because of, uh, of their, uh, their sin, the elders of Israel, they, they approached Samuel and they said, we want you uh, because you're old, you're going to die soon, your sons uh, are, aren't, don't follow the ways of God, we want you to provide us with a king. We want you to, to, to anoint a king over us. And here's the interesting thing about what they're doing. They are rejecting one form of hereditary leadership to adopt another form of hereditary leadership. Right? They're rejecting Samuel and his sons, but that they want is a king who will have a son, who will have a son, who will have a son. They're, they're, they're rejecting one form of hereditary leadership for another one. All right, and so we see in uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Uh, something to, to understand here is that way back in Deuteronomy, God actually said that there would be a king. Uh, kingship uh, w would happen for the people of Israel, but the way that it's coming about is all wrong. Because what, the way it's coming about is, is the elders of Israel are, are not just uh, wanting to adopt uh, a king, they're also wanting to reject God. And you see this in the language of God that he's saying, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And here's what we need to understand from this. These are God's special people, right? He brings them out of, 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 of slavery and exodus and he gives them his law and he says, this is my covenant with you, you're gonna be my people, I'm gonna be your God and, and this is the nature of our relationship, you're mine and I'm yours, I mean, these are image bearers of God in covenant relationship with God, and, and their, their identity is intricately connected to who God is. We talk about this a lot. Our identities come from God. And we ask these four questions. Who is God? And what has he done? And based on how we answer that, we realize what our identity is, who we are. And out of that, how do we get to live? 
For these people, their identities are wrapped up in who God is. And what they're essentially saying to God is, is we don't want an identity found in you. We want an identity found somewhere else. We don't want an identity that looks like you. We want an identity that looks like the nations of the people around us. We want a different identity. Essentially, is what is going on in the heart of these leaders. And so God says, all right. He's not going to say no to them. Uh, many of you as parents, have, have you experienced this? Like you have children whose hearts are bent on doing a certain thing and you warn them that it's going to go badly for them if they do it. And what do they say? I got this, right? So uh, God tells Samuel, warn them. Warn them about what's going to happen. And so uh, Samuel does. He says, look, you thought my kids took bribes? A king is going to take everything. A king is going to take your sons. A king is going to take your daughters. A king is going to take the fruit of your labor. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take your, your livestock. A king is going to take and take and take from you until you realize one day you're slaves, just like you were in Egypt. You're slaves again. And so he warns them. You've warned your child against doing something because you know the outcome of it is going to be bad. But you know, you could put your foot down and say no, but as soon as you turn your back, they're going to go do it anyway. And so what God does is he says, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you up to this desire. And so... Uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, we're introduced to a, a man named Kish who has a son named Saul. Uh, Kish is very, he's a wealthy man. His, his son Saul is a handsome man. He's very tall. So uh, rich, handsome, and tall, everything you want in a human leader, that's what Saul is. And, uh, and so we're introduced to Saul, and we see this sort of strange story at the beginning of his, of his, of his origin story, I guess you could call it. Um, some donkeys go missing, and uh, dad says to Saul, go find the donkeys. And so Saul uh, takes a servant with him. And uh, if you look at, at the, the geography that's, that's laid out there in the beginning of chapter 9, uh, the places that they go throughout the hill country of Ephraim, they cover about 300 square miles of territory looking for some donkeys. And, and part of you has got to be like, just buy some more donkeys. You're rich, right? But uh, anyway, so they go, they go looking for these donkeys. And after a period of time, they run out of food. And, and Saul says, okay, uh, dad's probably worried about me now. So let's go back. And the servant says, well, we got one more alternative. Instead, um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we go to this guy that's, who's close by? He's a seer. He's a prophet. He's someone who, who hears from God. Maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. And, uh, and so they, they set off to go and meet Samuel. Uh, and so we read in chapter 9, verse 16, God actually tells Samuel the day before that Saul is going to show up. He says, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And so uh, the two of these people are introduced. Now this is, this is a very pivotal moment in the book of Samuel and all of redemptive history because right now the period of the judges is going to end and the period of the kings is going to begin. Right? Samuel is the last judge, but he also becomes the anointer of kings. 
So he is introduced to, to Saul. Uh, there's, a, there's a banquet. Saul's the guest of honor. Saul spends the night with Samuel. He gets him up uh, the next morning to send him on, a, on his way. And, and he sends his servant on ahead. And he pulls Saul aside and he anoints him to be prince over Israel. Now this is, this is completely unofficial. We will look at the, the official installation of Saul as king next week. Uh, but, but Saul walks away from the situation not completely knowing what he's gotten himself into. But somehow he's the new leader of Israel. Right? So that's where our section of passage ends today. Right? Now, uh, if you haven't studied it, and because we went by it so fast, I don't expect you to, to see these, but there are some, uh, at least on the surface, some inconsistencies uh, going on in, in this passage. Uh, there, there are some things that um, don't quite add up or make sense or uh, what you might even find to be contradictory. Okay? Now, for a lot of people, uh, when they, they look at Scripture, uh, they see the inconsistencies that are apparent to them, and they see contradictions that are apparent to them in Scripture, and because of that, they reject it as being true. They, they, they see things in, in Scripture, and then they say that that, that doesn't add up, uh, and, and so they, they reject it as truth. And, and the idea that, that there's a sovereign God behind that, if this is the greatest revelation of who he is, then, then this is pretty pathetic, and he probably doesn't exist. Okay? A, a lot of people, they reject uh, Christianity basis, based on, on, on what they see as inconsistency and, uh, and these things in Scripture. I want to read a, a quote to you. This is from uh, an organization called atheist.org. Uh, they're a nonprofit organization uh, defending uh, First Amendment rights for atheists. Uh, currently, they're in a battle to remove the words uh, in God we trust from the Mississippi license plate. And, uh, and when it comes to uh, Scripture and this idea of, of um, contradiction, this is what they, they have to say. What is incredible about the Bible is not its divine authorship. It's that such a concoction of contradictory nonsense could be believed by anyone to have been written by an omniscient God. To do so, one would first have to not read the book, which is the practice of most Christians. Or if one does read it, dump in the trash can one's rational intelligence to become a fool for God. Now, um, you, know, you look at this website a little bit more under the about heading, you, you find uh, out a little bit more about how they define themselves. And, uh, and how they define themselves actually comes from a, a Supreme Court uh, uh, case that goes back to 1959. It was a case to remove uh, prayer from schools in Baltimore. And, and this is how they define themselves. It says, uh, you, your petitioners are atheists. And they define their lifestyle as follows. An atheist loves himself and his fellow man instead of a god. An atheist accepts that heaven is something for which we should work for now here on earth, for all men together to enjoy. An atheist accepts that he can get no help through prayer, but that he must find in himself the inner conviction and strength to meet life, to grapple with it, to subdue it, and to enjoy it. An atheist accepts that only in a knowledge of himself and a knowledge of his fellow man can he find the understanding that will help lead to a life of fulfillment. Okay? Now, before anybody wants to, you know, grab pitchforks and torches and storm the atheist.org castle, wherever that is, uh, I want you to take a look at what they say, and I want you to see that there are some things in here that we actually agree with. There's actually some points of agreement 
that they have with Orthodox Christianity. Okay? Uh, humans are meant to love one another. Uh, we're to work together toward improvement of humanity. Humanity has significant value. That the human life has an ultimate meaning. These, there's actually points of agreement with us and, and them. The, the differing point, however, is they, like those elders of Israel, are seeking to find an identity apart from God. They're, they're seeking to, to, to say that, that there is no God, and, and, there, and because of that, we have an identity that comes from a different place. There, there is no God. Our identity is different. A completely different identity. So, uh, to go back to what they say about contradictions. There's two things that we need to take seriously about their indictments. Okay? The first indictment is that Christians don't read their Bibles. Is, are they wrong? The first indictment is that Christians don't actually know what the Bible says. Are they wrong? The second indictment is that when Christians do read their Bibles, when they come across something that they don't understand or something that's difficult, something that may be inconsistent, that when they come across these things, instead of wrestling with them, instead of dealing with them, instead of diving into them and seeking understanding of them, instead of doing that, we, we brush them aside and we don't do the hard work. And, and I think that for some Christians, they are worried that their faith is, is like a, a rotten piece of fruit. It looks really good on the outside, but if you grab it, it just it explodes. That, that people are wor worried that, that the Christian faith is, is just painted rust. And if you poke it with your finger, it'll go right through it. And you need to understand that the word of God is not so flimsy. It's not so soft. It's not so weak that it can't stand up to scrutiny, that it can't stand up to questioning. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at some of the, the apparent or surface level inconsistencies within the, the text that we just looked at, and we're going to ask some, some questions. Here's the first one. Uh, back in nine, I'm sorry, 7.13, it states that the Philistines were subdued, and they did not again enter the territory of Israel. Did not again enter. However... Chapter 9, verse 16, it says something different. It says, uh, he, that's Saul, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And so it's not a huge inconsistency, but it's, but it's there. Uh, are the Philistines subdued and kept out, or are they still a threat? Second one, a little bit more significant here. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. All right, so um, when, you, when you hear that, do you hear like there's an attitude that's sort of, it's anti-monarchy, right? It's a negative thing to reject God and choose a, a human king. However, again in 9.16, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. The, the monarchy is shown in a positive light here. All right? They don't exactly jive. And so we, we could take this and let's ask a, a question of it. And the question would be, is, is God the king that they needed or is the king they needed a man? 
right? Is God the king they needed, or is the king they needed a man? It's worth wrestling with. Uh, The third one, found in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. And it seems like God is saying here, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, but as they're rejecting me, they're rejecting you. And so, what does that mean? Let's press in on that. Uh, A question that we could ask the text is, is God the one being rejected, or is it Samuel, or is it a man who's being rejected? Fourth one, uh, God tells Samuel to inform the people of the consequences of, of choosing a human uh, uh, king. And, and, and it's found in the word take. And the, the king, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going he's to take all of these things until you end up and uh, find yourself enslaved. And in that moment, you're going to call out to God. You're going to cry for help, but God's not going to hear you. Verse 18 of chapter 8. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But that attitude doesn't seem to be consistent with the attitude that's displayed in 9, verse 16. It says, And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. In other words, God's choosing him. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Doesn't that seem contradictory? Because on the one hand, God's saying, you're going to reject me, and in my, my righteous judgment of you, When you find yourself enslaved, you'll call out to me and I won't answer. And yet on the other hand, it's saying, you're going to reject me and you're going to call out to me and in my mercy, I'm going to hear you. So here's a couple of other questions that we could ask of the text. Is God a God of judgment or is God a God of mercy? Is God a God of wrath or is he a God of love? Does God judge sinners or does God save sinners? And you see, to, to, to somebody who, who's a part of something like atheist.org, they would look at these, the, these inconsistencies or the, these contrasts and say, see? See what I mean? Like, it doesn't add up. This religion doesn't make sense. It, 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 this God is contradictory if he exists. I cannot believe that this is true. And anybody who would believe in this sort of stuff has to check their brain at the door. So let's answer them. First of all, let's be Christians who read our Bibles. Secondly, let's be Christians who who are willing to dive into the difficult stuff of Scripture and not dismiss it because it's too hard to lift. So let's talk about it. The first uh, inconsistency, I I think, is is, is pretty easily explained away just through semantics. Semantics. Now, um, I, would, I would argue that a lot of, of people's uh, problems with Scripture as being inconsistent um, or, or, or contradictory is that they simply fail to understand context, like dealing with a whole passage of Scripture rather than just a blurb from it. I mean, right now, if you were to open up your smartphone and you would see on social media that there's, there's some sort of thing there that wants you to click on it, Right, there's some sort of blurb about so-and-so said something and it was really spectacular or really rude or really, like, and, and they want you to click on it. This, is, this clickbait to, to send you down this rabbit hole to believe whatever it is they want you to believe. Right? And, and, and so people do that with scripture. Here's a line of scripture. And, and you see how it contradicts with this other line of scripture. And, and, and it seems so profound, but if you actually look at it in context, it's understandable. We see that, I think, here in the first one with, with the Philistines. Did God uh, really uh, subdue all the Philistines, and, or, or did he not? 
And I think if, when you look at the context, what you see is that under Samuel, God subdued them. But under Samuel, there was peace. There was prosperity. And once again, people walked away from God. And so God removed his hand of protection. And once again, the Philistines were a threat. I don't think that one's a very big deal. But the, the second, third, and the fourth ones are, I think, are a little bit tougher. They're a little bit more uh, difficult to deal with. And, and I think that the, the way that you understand these things is that the, the context of, of understanding them isn't just found in Samuel. It's actually found in the overarching theme of, of the whole story. It's, it's best actually understood uh, in, in Jesus. You see, uh, when God points to Saul and says to Samuel, um, he's going to be the, the savior of my people, like the editor who's putting this together has already... Uh, already knows that that's not what happened. Saul is going to be used by God to refine another man named David who he's going to promise a descendant, a Messiah to come to, and Jesus comes from him. So he's, he's part of the story, but he's not, he's not the Savior. Uh, we're, we're going to see Jesus here, here in a minute, but I want to point out something else to you before we, we, we tackle these three. The first is that um, when we look at chapters 8 through 12, and I know we're not looking at, at uh, 10, 11, and 12 today, but I encourage you to do it on your own. Um, when you look at chapters 8 through 12, what you'll discover there is that there's two competing attitudes regarding the monarchy. There, uh, on one side is an attitude that, um, that, that going to a, a monarchy is a rejection of God and it's a bad thing. But there's, there's a competing attitude that says that going to a monarchy is a good thing because it will keep people in God. So in chapter 8, we see sort of an anti-monarchy chapter. And then uh, in chapter, uh, uh, the next chapter, 9 through chapter 10, verses 17 or 16, uh, we see sort of a, a pro-monarchy passage. You look at the attitudes towards the monarchy. You see a pro-monarchy. Then in chapters uh, 10, uh, the end of chapter uh, 10, 17 through 27, it's, it's anti-monarchy again. And then it flips back in chapter 11 to pro-monarchy. And then chapter 12 is anti-monarchy again. And so there's these competing attitudes going on about what... What, what this is all about. And, and it seems that the editor of all this is, is purposely showing us these things. Now, when we talk about Samuel, we need to remember that it's not an author who wrote all of this. Rather, it's an editor that's compiling all of this. That there are various authors who contributed to this, who wrote different aspects of it, and an editor comes along and he takes all of these stories and he formulates it into one longer narrative. And so this editor, he purposely takes stories that are different and that are actually seemingly competitive towards one another. And he puts them side by side, and it's like a tennis match. Anti-pro, anti-pro. Why? Because the author wasn't human, the author was divine. You see, you and I would never write a story that way. If you and I were going to make up a religion, we would not take current events that have different spins and put them all together without editing them to make them line up with one another. We wouldn't do that. Look at the Gospels. We have four Gospels. And the fact that they're not identical actually verifies the truthfulness of them. Ask any police detective. If you've got four people that come to you say that they've witnessed a crime, and the four people that come to you, their stories for the crime, it, they line up identically. All of the facts, all of the details, all of them are perfectly identical. That detective will tell you they're lying. Because what they did was they got together and they worked out their story. And they're lying. 
You got four witnesses that come to you though and they could all point to the same culprit who did it but they got different facts and they got different details that are included then it's true. You see, we need to understand the Bible is it's not just 66 different stories put together by a whole bunch of different offers over, over so many time. It's one story. It's a story of a good and perfect God who creates everything. And at the center of this, he creates his image bearers who are good at the beginning, but they decide they want an identity apart from him. And so God sets about the rest of the story to redeem these people. And he sends his son to take on flesh and to come and live the life they couldn't live, to die and pay a debt they couldn't pay, and to rise again for new life. Like, there's one big story here. And if you want to understand the inconsistencies and the contradictions of Scripture, look into the cross and watch them disappear. Watch these disappear. A quote, I forgot to read this, totally skipped over it. Joyce Baldwin in commenting on uh, First Samuel, she says the editor suppresses neither of the traditions. Each is allowed its full integrity. Each viewpoint is seen to be important. There is ample evidence that the biblical writers were not as concerned as we are about harmonization. The reason for that is God has got a bigger story he's telling. And you see that in Jesus, God becomes man. In Jesus, God becomes man. Our first question was, this, is God the king we need or is the king we need a man? And in Jesus, the answer is yes. You see, the Virgin Mary conceived, uh, delivers a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, God and man together. Uh, Saul, uh, which, which out of his, his, his horrible reign and rule creates David and from David a line of kings come that leads us to the Messiah, to the king. He, he, Jesus is the God, man, king, all in one. And he's the one that is, that is needed and he's the one that First Samuel points to. The second question is, is God the one being rejected or is it man who's being rejected? And ultimately, yes and yes in Jesus. In John 19, 15, the religious leaders who have, who have stirred up a crowd who want to see Jesus crucified and Pontius Pilate has, has examined Jesus and he brings him out and he says, behold your king. And the whole crowd just, there's this uproar and they, and they say this, they cried, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. It's the God-man, Jesus, who is rejected. And he's rejected not only by humanity, he's rejected by God. There at the cross, we hear the words, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he absorbs the wrath of God on him for the sins of humanity. The God-man, King, he's the one we need, he's the one we rejected. The final two questions, is God a God of judgment or is God a God of mercy? Is God a God of wrath or is God a God of love? And in Jesus, it's yes, and it's yes, and it's yes, and it's yes. Because only God who could stand up against the wrath of God the Father. And it's only a man who could die and pay the penalty. It's only God who could live a holy and righteous and sinless life and it's only a man who could be the sacrifice. You see, in Jesus, in the cross, wrath and love 
justice and mercy all come together so that we can go free. He's the king that we need. He's the king that we rejected. But if we would go to the cross, if we would brace him and see him, he is the God who has given everything for us. If we would accept him, if we would embrace him, if we would find our identity in King Jesus, then we'd have the king that we need. I'll close with this. God tells Samuel to warn the Israelites of what would happen. The king will take from you. He'll take everything for you. Until the very end, you'll be slaves. You'll be slaves. You know, um, when, you, when you think about this, this organization, atheist.org, and some of the things that we have in common with them, they reveal to us the things in our heart that are inconsistent with who you are. Father, I recognize that in the morning I'm willing to read your word and I'm willing to rest you with it and I'm willing to claim you as, as Lord and submit to your authority but by, by lunchtime I am saying to you, God, I don't need you and I've got this and I want a kingdom without the king or at least I want to be the king. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the, those inconsistent things in us Lord Jesus, thank you for being the God 